0: Hello, and welcome back to our Spy Master interview series. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, we have a Remo Williams-themed treat for everyone this week. That's right, we do. This is very exciting. You could say our adventure began, and now our adventure continues. <laughs> and it'll never end, Scott, ever. <laughs> Here's hoping. But uh, this week we are joined by the prolific composer the man who created the uh, soundtrack for remo williams also he's credited on movies like the last starfighter nightmare on elm street 4 fade to black *Roller boogie stand and deliver and of course he did the music for the cheers tv show as well it is none other than
1: craig safan this is a really exciting get one maybe people didn't expect but i felt like Coming out of Remo Williams, that was the element of the movie that I enjoyed the most. So this was a really cool um, interview subject.
0: Yeah, of all the things in Remo Williams, I think the music was one of the things that had some thought put into it. Mm. I was overjoyed that Craig said yes, to sit down, and talk to us. So we're going to send you over to the interview right now. We are joined by the one and only Craig Safan. Craig, thanks for joining us.
2: My pleasure. Great to see you.
0: Now we're discussing Remo Williams and adventure begins this week, um, which is why I got in contact with you because one of my favorite things about that film, frankly, is the score. It's mm. fantastic. And I was you. you know, humming it before you came on just now. And uh, Cam yeah. can attest to that. Yes, he was. Uh, uh, incessantly in his yeah. ear. <laughs> um, but I think before we get into Remo, I, I kind of want to hear from you about you know, how you got started in working in film composition.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I was always doing music from when I was about probably five or six years old and improvising and, you know, I, I was pretty good. Started to write songs and I thought I'd be a songwriter, really. And that's where I started. So I thought I in my early 20s, I was doing songwriting. I was occasionally arranging strings or brass for a records struggling performing with my brother singing and one day i just got a call i remember i was working at my father's jewelry store and i was couldn't have been more miserable you know wearing a suit and tie and it was just horrifying i hated it i hated every minute of it but uh i get a call from a friend from college who said you know uh we're, I got married. I'm out in Los Angeles. My husband's starting AFI, American Film Institute, and has done a little horror film. You're the only music person I know because she knew me from college. Do you know who can do the music for my my uh, husband's horror film? And I went, I'll do it, and uh, I did it. And the movie never got released. It was the director became quite famous eventually, John McTiernan, uh, you know, who did predator and uh, all that sort of stuff but uh that just totally hooked me i went this is what i should be doing this is absolutely what i should be doing it's so much more my talents than uh trying to write pop songs you write a pop song and it's like you're aiming for this teeny little bullseye and it's really not my talent my talent is very broad very eclectic musically all over the place which is perfect for film composition so I had been uh, working with a group of musicians at a studio called Clover Studios. And uh, the guy who was the producer was producing me and my brother was named Chuck Plotkin, who ended up being head of a and of Geffen and then produced a lot of the Bruce Springsteen albums. But my friends, in fact, one of them who, I was, who we just spoke to earlier today, my friends, it turned out, who were playing on all the demos, their parents were all film composers. It was just totally uh, serendipity. So this friend who I was talking to a few hours ago is Peter Bernstein, who's a bass player, whose father happened to be Elmer Bernstein. Uh, Then there was Andrew Gold, the great guitar player, whose father was Ernest Gold, who wrote Exodus. Then there was Wendy Waldman who was singing and writing songs, and her father was Fred Steiner who wrote the Perry Mason theme, a lot of the Star Treks, a lot of Twilight Zones, uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle theme. And so though I, I went, well, your dads are in film music. So I called them up, and the three of them basically became my mentors, each in very different ways, and helped me start my career. It was really, really amazing.
1: Now, your first film was um, Acapulco uh, Gold, right?
2: I don't think that was my first film, but maybe it was one, one of the first ones. I'd have to look it up. Right, right. Uh,
1: what was sort of that first, I guess I'm looking more at the, not so much what the credit was, so much as your first film. Because the way I always look at it as a musically untalented person, it seems like it would be hugely overwhelming sitting down to do your first film score when you're presented with the materials. So well, what, was, what was that first experience like?
2: Um, it's really hard to remember, but I I wasn't overwhelmed at all because I was just never that way. I just, I had written three musicals in college. I had gotten, uh, what's called a a Watson, Thomas Watson Fellowship to go to, that's where I was in England writing music for a year. Um, I won all sorts of awards. I mean, I was never, um... Was never a problem for me to just sort of sit down and do something. Right. In fact, what I tell the young students when I talk at film schools, I go, never say no. Can you do this kind of music? Oh, yeah, no problem. <laughs> and then, you know, you go, i never heard of that. <laughs> I, re- I remember I was I did the Bad News Bears and they had me adapting Tchaikovsky the 1812 overture and believe it or not i i said i could do it but i had never heard the 1812 overture because i was not a i was really a pop guy I never studied classical music in fact in college i was a fine arts major so i never really went to music right. school so uh, you know i was always a, a more of a painter artist kind of guy right. so yeah you, so yeah. i wasn't really overwhelmed at all hmm. i was gonna Hopefully look you- up yeah I was going to say, you're talking
0: to two major blaggers here. So we uh, we understand completely faking it till you make it. Absolutely. Yeah,
2: I really think that's the secret of success. I mean, I know it's been, you know, that Leonardo DiCaprio movie. I mean, there's movies, you know, where that, that's ex- exaggerated. But, but basically, you just can't say no. You just have to, mm-hmm. there aren't that many opportunities. So you have to, you can't say, well, call so-and-so and Maybe I'd be ready for this in a few years. you know. I think anyone who has that attitude is not gonna be very successful in, in, in most pursuits because most things you're just flying by the seat of your pants. You're just figuring it out and you have to trust that you're smart enough and talented enough and you can do it. And if you don't, well, that's <laughs> just life, you know. I mean, You'll you know. soon find out. Exactly, <laughs> absolutely.
0: Well, it's interesting that you kind of, sort of fell into uh, this vocation. Um, is there anything looking back on your early years? Any scores that you remember, or any composers, anything like that, that you fondly remember that have maybe influenced you going into
2: it? Um, I not really. I I loved Stravinsky. I mean, I was a huge fan. Uh, even though I didn't go to music school, I I bought a lot of music and listened to a lot, and and I started. When I worked on my musicals, I went, boy, I want to know how to put a little orchestra together. So I actually took a course in orchestration and, and I got some feeling of some music. So I loved uh, Stravinsky's ballets. I like Beethoven a lot. I loved uh, Prokofiev. I mean, I, I wasn't unaware of other music. I loved Bartok. Um, but I had big gaps in my education. You know, I had never really listened to Mozart much. So uh, I'm still not a big fan. But uh so I I what was the question? I can't remember the question. <laughs> it's fine.
0: Um, so any like film
2: scores you remember? Oh, liking as a kid? Not really. I mean, I remember going and, and seeing some movies and going, oh, Dmitri Tjomkin. Yeah, that that's cool. I, I mean, I remembered some of the big scores, but I wasn't aware of it. And um I never thought of it as a career. I mean, I didn't grow up thinking that's a career path because first of all, neither of my parents would have thought of it. And second of all, there were no schools back then. I mean, now there's a plethora of schools that teach film music and all that stuff, but there there really weren't back then. There were a few film schools, but they weren't teaching composers.
1: And you're coming up at an interesting point to entering the field where you have this sort of this new blood of like your John Williams's really making a name. Well, like when you look back at so many of the old composers doing films, there's not as many name recognition, there's not as much name recognition as there was that it was coming out of that era. Was that uh, somewhat clear to you at the time when you're entering the field that there's a lot of these heavyweight kind of younger guys who are making a name for themselves?
2: Not really, because I never thought of John Williams as a younger guy to I me. Mean, he was always well, old.
1: true,
2: <laughs> And uh, yeah. he's, you know, cause he's 10, probably more than 10 years older than me. Yeah. And, uh, and also my generation um you know i i knew spielberg i knew i I worked a lot with nick castle who was all they were all people from usc i worked with john millius who was there i knew basil who was there Uh, i knew a lot of people who were from that era and we all i mean i knew lucas too we all knew each other and so we all sort of came up together and i think when um So I think a lot of the composers were more my age. So if you think of Basil Polidorus or Alan Mm -hmm. Silvestri or uh, James Newton Howard or, or, um, you know, you know, that that sort of those were all my gen. They're all people who are more or less my age. Right. And so the older people, I really didn't know. I mean, I knew who Bill Conti was, who did Rocky. Mm -hmm. And I knew who John Williams was, but I didn't know who he was until Star Wars. Right. So, um, but obviously he'd been around for a long time, even at that point, but he would, I, I knew a few of the names from the older guys, like, well, like the people I knew, like Elmer Bernstein, I knew who Max Steiner was, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I knew, I started studying, so I started figuring out who a lot of those composers were from the golden age period. Um, well, I think what we'll
0: do is because I know between getting started, you had things like Cheers started up, you had the last Starfighter, and then Remo Williams came along. Mm. What I think I'll do is we'll tackle Remo and then we'll come back to things like Cheers and the last Starfighter. Sure. Um, so, my first Remo question is How did you get involved with Remo Williams?
2: Um, well, I just got it through my agent. Um, I'm not quite sure exactly how I was hired. Uh, I was, my name was, you know, pretty big at that point and from Starfighter and all that stuff, people knew who I was and somehow I got that job and, uh, bet Guy Hamilton and he, they hired me. Um, and I met the producers. Uh, I don't think there was anything that specific. I, I did get Nightmare on Elm Street because Bob Shea, who, who was one of the producers of Remo heard Remo. And went, Oh, I want him to do Elm Street. So I did that after. I know that, but I'm not sure how I got uh, Remo specifically.
0: Is there like an audition process for, for composers, or they just they've heard your previous work so then they just carried that
2: Well, and, you know, that's how you get work. If someone's heard what you did or you or there's good word of mouth, or there's a movie that came out that is making a bit of a splash, that's how you have a career.
1: Now, I'm curious, you're working with Guy Hamilton, who had obviously made his name in the Bond franchise, and Remo yeah. Williams is seen as potentially America's answer to James Bond, maybe? Yeah. Um, I'm curious how much that fed into figuring out the musical identity of Remo Williams, because with Bond, the music is so important. And just how much of the conversations you were having with Hamilton about you know figuring out themes for this character?
2: Well, honestly... He wasn't that involved. I mean, I think I spent one evening with him, which is a story in and of itself. Um, but uh, where he came over and listened to my themes, and that was it. He came over. I. He really gave me no input. It was just like, okay, tell me when you have your themes ready. And I just thought, well, this is a big adventure piece, so you need a you need a hero theme. So every time Remo does something big, you can bring out the big brass theme. And then of course, what was really interesting to me was the Korean subtext and the character of Chun and to do that music properly. So that was a a big concern of mine. I uh, spent a huge amount of time at the UCLA Ethnomusicology Library researching Korean music because I didn't want it to to sound like generic, Asian music, which is what a lot of movies at that point were, you know, where they're all sounding, are they Chinese? Are they Japanese? Are they Korean? Are they Vietnamese? It all sounds exactly the same. So I thought, well, I have to find out what makes Korean music specifically Korean, which I did. And luckily, there is a huge Korean population in Los Angeles. I think there's the most Koreans here outside of Seoul. There's a huge population, a whole place called K-Town. If you live around here, which is Koreatown, which is a huge part of LA and restaurants and nightclubs and all that. And there were some Korean orchestras, so I, I hooked into those and learned how to write for those instruments and used a lot of that in the scoring of Remo. Mm-hmm. And the slow theme, the one that goes da, da 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 is actually based on a Korean folk song. And what was interesting, I remember when Guy came over and I played him the big adventure theme which he loved and then I played him what I call Chun's theme, which is that you know mm-hmm. little melody he went oh yes I know that that's from a career he knew it immediately which was sort of cool I thought that was sort of interesting
0: cool. I, I suppose my next question was going to be just more of a general how do you actually start to put your uh, scores together you kind of started us off there with you doing the research? Um, but how do you go about, do you read the scripts? Do you see an early yeah. print of the film? How do you do it? Yeah. I
2: don't really read scripts much. I, I mean, I have, but I don't find them very useful because usually the movies come out really different than the scripts. And also I think as a composer, you're reacting to visual content. I don't think you can write music to a script. I think you're, you're feeling, what the visuals are, what the pacing is, what it looks like, and you that's what I react to as a composer. Um, I think the first one of the first things I do as a composer would be to create the palette of the film. So uh, and I think maybe this came from me being an art student first. So if you think of Picasso, you know he he went through a period where he just used blue. He went through a period where he used green. He went through a period where it was all cubist and so that's sort of creating your palette and i've always felt that's really useful in film music so i did that with cheers for sure i did it and i definitely did it with remo so you know with remo it's like i wanted which is really a complex palette I mean, that's the most complex film i think i ever wrote you know where it's like lots of synths we have 24 tracks of synths full orchestra and then i had a korean band i had like about 10 korean guys trying to play with everybody and so that was, I, I sort of came up as that, that was the palette of the film. And I do that with every film. And that, I think, gives you limitations, which I think help you in your writing quite a bit. So that's mm-hmm. the first thing I do. Then the next thing I do is I try to write the themes, but I sort of sometimes will go into the middle of the film and try to and just write some music that I know won't be you know in your face it'll be buried it's not that important it, you just need to do it just to get a feel of it and then i go back to the main title after i've gotten sort of my uh bearings a little bit i'll go back and do the main title a little later because i figure at that point i know a little more about what i'm writing right so now, that's the, that's the process
1: okay so you're you're talking about chion's theme as well as remos' theme one thing you did fantastically well was a very like recognizable character theme. And that feels like a lost art nowadays. I see so few composers doing it. There's the odd one, you know, the odd one pops up. But what is it you can say, whether from when you're crafting one yourself or just to your own ear, what makes a great character theme?
2: Well, I think that, I think that you don't hear them that much anymore because the directors don't want them anymore. Yeah. I don't think it's from lack of, composers being able to write themes. I think a lot of our, a lot of the composers who right now, you know, can write great themes. But I just don't think, uh, you know, when you think of Christopher Nolan or those kind of directors, it's like, to them, music is just another texture. It's like, I mean, a lot of times, like when I listen to Dunkirk or something, I'm going, is that an airplane or is that the score? I mean, is that, even The Dark Knight had a lot of score that was buried in the sound effects. Mm -hmm. um and i just think that's the style but what makes a great theme i don't know i think it just has to be really um short you know not a lot of notes and sort of in your face i don't i don't really know i mean i've always been pretty good at melody so uh, i enjoy writing thematic music i don't know what makes a great theme though i think I think also the other thing is that the music ha- the movie has to give you a space for that to exist because if the movie's just always dialogue or always this or that, you don't really have the the air. You know, you don't have the air to throw a theme in there. So even in Williams, it's I mean, excuse me, even in Remo it's it's very short. It's just dun 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 It's just really Okay, fit it in. Da, da, da. Anyway, we're back to the film. You know, it's like you've got to, you, you don't have that much space. And it's every once in a while, maybe you can go to the editor or director going, hey, can you give me two more seconds and <laughs> at the end of that scene so I can play out the theme? I mean, occasionally you do that. But but the theme has to be pretty strong, you know, even the when you think of the John Williams themes. They're they're not very long. I mean, except for certain ones like ET, where there's seems like there's much more space to develop something.
0: It's, it's interesting hearing you talk about the individual character themes. And I, I was just linking it all together in my head because if you started off writing pop songs and and, yep. and going down that avenue, one of the things in my head, at least for pop songs, is that catchy hook to get you in. And, and that's how I think you know individual character themes should work as well. It needs to be something that you recognize as. Captain America's theme or Remo's theme, well, and I, I actually I can see the genesis now, and it makes sense that you captured those characters so well.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm. Yeah, I definitely started writing songs, and I was always really good at melody. Hmm. But I feel like I'm a dramatic composer at heart. I don't feel I'm a pop composer, you know, where there's very little uh, dramatic content hmm. in the songs.
1: Now I was curious. Uh, Remo has a fair number of action scenes you could talk a little bit about scoring action because I've seen so many movies you know where say the action is decently shot but the score doesn't add to that momentum and I felt like with Remo it actually did work so what is maybe the you know the fine art of scoring action
2: yeah I don't I it's a really hard question because you know sometimes action doesn't need music Mm -hmm. it was funny I we were just I mean we're stuck at home here and yesterday's yesterday, Sunday, and I'm going, I'm not going to go in the studio. And we're watching, and Jurassic Park comes on, And there's this whole scene where, I think it's where the tyrannosaurus is trying to get in the car. There's no music. It's just, you know, the growls. And I thought, that's really interesting that there, I just had that thought. And then at a certain scene, it cuts back, and the, and the horns just jump in. And so I think part of it is knowing when to drop out and when to come in. So if it's just endless music, it's sort of, you stop hearing it. So I think what's really clever about really great action films, and I think Jurassic Park is a quite a good, fantastically made film, is that there are moments where they let sound effects come in. And then when the move, music comes in, it actually does something dramatically. And then it goes out. Uh, I think the other thing is... Uh, the pacing of it you know so in remo it's a lot of it's it's pretty it's pretty move it, it keeps moving and it has a slightly militaristic thing because there's a militaristic theme to it so it's uh bum, 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 bum. the other thing that i do a lot is you know you're and uh, this i probably got from jerry goldsmith because again having known those people when i was in my early 20s I'd get invited to see Jerry Goldsmith score or John Barry and all those people. I was lucky enough to see them. And so your your body naturally goes along in four, you know, bum, 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 Think of EDM, you know, think if you've ever been to an EDM concert or something, it's just Well, you do that and your body and the audience is sort of doing that, but then you go, do, 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 dun, 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 dun. All of a sudden you pull, switch it up and, and your whole, your audiences involuntarily, you know, freak out a little bit. And and, and then you go back. And you, you know, that's part of the art of writing film music is realizing that the reason that music actually exists in film is that it your body processes processes it involuntarily. So I mean that's the reason there still is music in film. Why else would there be music? Because there's no uh, border to it. You can your your brain can't cut it out know, short of headphones, you, your, your body responds to it, your, your uh, pulse changes, your conductivity of your skin. There's all this physical stuff that happens when you listen to music. And uh, so if you do, if you're a little tricky about it, I think also that helps prepare, propel the action sequences.
0: I think, oh yeah, with, for me at least with films, I know when there's been a good score. I don't know when there's been a bad score, but that's because I've not noticed the score. Right. So I I think it has to show its face at some point. And that's exactly right. Sometimes it needs to go away. Sometimes it needs to jump in your face. Um, My question was to do with the actual album itself, because it was recently, a few years ago, re-released the
2: Remo Williams soundtrack. Just last year. In fact, it just, uh, it's now vinyl. They just did the, did a, they released it about a year and a half ago. They went back to the, this is note for note music and mm-hmm. uh, they went back they got the original master so it's it's really the best sounding version of it i think this is the fourth release of it and they did a great job and then they just uh, released it i think a year no because i signed them during the pandemic because i remember sitting outside with a mask signing like a couple hundred of them um, and it's like it's a double uh double vinyl with cool artwork and beautiful plastic different colors you know the whole Mm. thing people like yeah so it's very recent yeah well
0: my question i sort of two questions but the first one was were you involved in the i I don't know if it was remastering they obviously found the master tracks but were you involved in the the remixing of the albums or anything like that
2: no it wasn't really remixed it was just remastered just straight over okay
0: um and do you have a, a favorite track apart from say Remo's theme or anything like that, maybe a track on the album that you particularly enjoy?
2: Yeah, I do. Um, uh, I really like, well, I love the main title. The main title is, to me, totally successful because it's mm-hmm. it's like such a weird combination of different kinds of music. It starts just with the per- uh, Korean percussion and the, the weird-sounding boat instrument that goes... It's a Korean bowed, uh, it's like a, sort of like a Kodo, but it's, you know, they bow it and Mm -hmm. they really get a lot of noise out of it. It's fun. Um, so I love that. I like the cue when Remo is learning the training sequence where he's sort of up on the ceiling and walking around and the music's going, because I just like all the Korean sounds and then mixed with the uh, synth sounds. It's just, I think that's really cool. The other one I think that's really beautiful is the one where he's running on wet cement. Mm, yeah. That sequence yeah. is really sort of almost new agey in, you know, in a way. <laughs> I think those are my favorite. Actually, the action scenes are not my favorite in the movie. I think the action scenes in Starfighter were better, written better. But uh, um yeah, my favorite. Those are my three favorite, probably, cues. I think um, the ending's pretty cool, too.
1: I just have a quick question about the Remo Williams TV project, the prophecy that they tried to get going. And I was just curious how involved you were in it. I'm guessing they they wanted to carry the theme. Did you actually score the project? I
2: scored it. I scored it, and it's been released on a CD, believe it or not. Nice. Per- Perseverance Records released that. Um <laughs> Yeah, you know, I have so little memory of it. In fact, when the guy who from Perseverance said he wanted to do it, I said, did I do that? <laughs> it was like, <laughs> I literally couldn't remember it. It was like a week job and I had to do the score, but with a without all the time and money I had on the movie. And the movie was, was a, a lot of work putting that score together. I have to give a lot of uh, credit to the, engineer dennis sands who mixed and recorded that because that was a monster to mix all those elements and make sense of them mm-hmm. he did a great job yeah but i don't remember much about the tv pilot i was involved though i did right. do okay Um uh,
0: well i think we should just quickly spin off into i think some of your other films i know for me the last starfighter is the other one i think of when i hear your name and okay. i actually went back and re-watched it today and it it just stands out. Again, the soundtrack for me is almost better than the film. It has its own, it's, its own entity for me.
2: Yeah. Did you see the Blu-ray? They released the new Blu-ray of it like three years I didn't years. see that.
0: I, I actually ended up watching a video of you um, uh, doing the orchestra for it recently, or it seemed a few years ago. I think you did that uh, and Remo on the same day.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Starfighter was, was a lot of fun, and it's turned into... Uh, you know something people write me about all the time and it gets performed a lot mm. um, all over the world and I've conducted it a bunch of times yeah it's uh I don't know what to say about it it, uh, it I mean it's interesting because I I was fighting imitating John Williams because that was so much of that time and if I had gone a really different direction it would have I would have just been fired basically. So I had to find a way to sort of make it my own voice and I think I did. So and I did that a bunch of ways. For example you talked about each character having a theme. Well in Starfighter they really didn't. It's really pretty much one theme. Uh, There is a Centauri theme but there but it's 90% is this just that one theme. And it's just played in a million different ways. So so it isn't like in Star Wars, there's literally Princess Leia's theme, Darth Vader's, you know, there's all these, it's really, really thematic in the the classic sense. But this was just more like, well, I have one theme and I can play it wistfully, I can play it triumphantly, I can play it sadly, I can play it, you know, I can play it 10 different ways. So that's, I think that was really successful.
1: So I had a question. We covered Rennie Harlan a while ago when we talked about The Long Kiss Goodnight. And, you know, you referenced earlier working on Nightmare on Elm Street 4. I'm just really curious, a couple of things, Um, working with him on his first real major American film, Mm -hmm. and then also entering a franchise that already has something of a musical identity and finding your own way to inject creativity into that.
2: Right, well, yeah, uh, I enjoyed working with Rennie. I thought he was a really inventive uh, guy. I liked his photography a lot. His cinematography was beautiful. He was pretty involved um, with the music. Not not really hands-on like that, I mean, which is good. I mean, I don't think a director should be, you know, like when you think of micromanaging like Michael Mann does with a composer, it, would, it just drives you insane. Hmm. But Rennie was really involved. And he was really involved in the mix and the sound effects and all that. Um, and I think in terms of it being a franchise, well, I've talked to Chris Young about it. So Chris used an orchestra. He did the whole thing orchestrally. And I think I came right after him and I wanted to do it totally electronically. So I, and and I had also, I think, just come off of a bunch of movies that were very orchestral and, and I was, I loved synthesizers. So, um, other than that, I, I had one uh, use of uh, Charles Bernstein's theme. I think I did it once. I just felt like I should. Nobody told me I had to. I mean, there was no nothing that came down that said, Craig, you have to use that theme. I just thought it was proper, and a, you because know, it identified that film, that one little hmm. thing. And that's a theme with like ba-da-da-da. It's like four notes or something. So that's going back to your idea of themes. Um what I did do when I talked earlier about a palette, so these are like sub-pallets in, in Elm Street. So the first palette is all electronic. Now, I don't want one real person playing. I'm playing it all. It's in clavier and MIDI instruments, all that stuff. The second thing is, is that I saw, at that point, the franchise had gone from being A truly frightening themes movie to being a campy horror film okay I had never seen it when I got hired and I went back and watched the first one and it was and I found it really scary frankly I thought it was really an effective horror film but by the time I did it and Freddie is like going you know it's the Roach Hotel you can check in but you can't check out squish it's like you know, I mean, it's so campy and sort of ridiculous. Also, the lack of anybody's caring or parents caring when p- kids are killed. It's like, oh, he's dead. Well, anyway, let's go to them <laughs> and get a soda tonight. You know, it's like it, it was totally ridiculous. So the so the music is a little cartoony. And what I did was that each sequence each time. I mean, it basically is how how is Freddie going to kill each kid? this person's going to be on a pizza this person's going to be turned into a cockroach this right so i really did a each sequence had its own identifying sounds uh so like when the first guy uh i forget the character's name is the the black kid he's in a junkyard so all those sounds are metal all the music sounds are metal like you're in a junkyard the one where he does karate has more Asian sounds to it, so it's it's sort of obvious like that. When she's a cockroach, I tried to get this sort of insect sound with a contrabass clarinet sample, which is like you know like uh, like like my ear is up against the cockroach, and that's what it sounds like. So each sequence had its own sound, right? And that, and so that was sort of how I handled it. Other than that, it was it sort of is what it. It is what it is. What's amazing to me is that, I know you say I know The Last Starfighter has lived on for a lot of people. I think it was a touchstone for a certain generation. But Nightmare on Elm Street just goes on forever. I mean, I constantly, I'm looking right now, they sent me like this package of eight vinyl discs with all new artwork and, you know, it's constantly being repackaged and sold to fans. It's, mm-hmm. it's just the, the, it's really phenomenal how uh, how big it is you know
0: yeah i mean that franchise has a bit of a life of its own it's, it's gone on for so long that's what um, i'm
2: saying yeah yeah exactly
0: um so the only question i had in in terms of last starfighter and sort of putting it up against Remo, um are those two scores which one do you do you prefer
2: well i have, I have sort of a soft place in my heart for last starfighter I think that's just uh, is super successful. That score, top to bottom. And it was a it was also a great experience recording it. It was a lot of fun. Um, I mean, Remo was great too. I had no. I had no conflicts on either of those pictures. But um, the director of Starfighter, uh, Nick Castle, is really a good friend of mine, and so it's it's like a pleasure to work for him. He and I are are really close. Guy, you know, Guy was pretty old when I did that film.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, you work on Remo. You also did the um, short-lived George Hamilton show, Spies. And we are a spy movie what, what are, podcast. Oh, What's okay. That? And so I was uh, curious, you know, as a composer, what makes for a good spy movie score?
2: Oh, I don't. I don't know. I haven't done very many of those. I think that was just a pilot. I don't think there was even a series. <laughs> uh what i remember about no i think i wrote a song for that. I'm, I'm mixing it up you know i don't remember much about those there there were like i did so many i mean every year i would do six or seven projects and mm. and most of them are just a blur at this point so uh except for the the bigger movies and sure. that was that was just a pilot but i think i wrote a song for that i think the main title was a song yeah. So I don't know what makes a good spy thing. I mean, what makes a good spy thing is John Barry's uh James <laughs> Bond, you know. And then what was the name of the guy who actually wrote the guitar theme? It wasn't John Barry.
1: No, Monty Norman.
2: Monty Norman. Da, 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 you know that. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a great spy thing. I think the other amazing spy thing, which was a TV show is Lalo Mission Impossible. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's a great theme. Um I don't, I don't know. That's fair.
0: Hey, you know, fair I have honestly
2: done that many spy pictures.
0: In our books, you Remo is a spy film in our book. So, uh, oh really?
2: Yeah, oh, it's uh, he's uh, he's kind of a
0: secret agent. That's so that's why we uh, we chose this film. So uh, yeah, there you he, go. You got Remo.
2: He is, but I don't think of that as a spy film. When I made it, I hadn't. I'd never had that thought. It was more of like he's a. It was more like an Indiana Jones. He's a hero. You know he does these amazing feats that deserve trumpets <laughs> they do <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. So the only other, any other sort of major question in terms of your film work that i had i know we're sort of moving on to tv i think uh, cam wanted to ask you about cheers actually um was how long does it generally take you to put one of these major motion picture scores together
2: oh it, it varies tremendously uh sometimes you can have a week or two which in which case you need a lot of help and sometimes you have two months maybe a little more sometimes three months but usually around two months I would say eight weeks it's a lot of work I mean when you think uh, that it's more music that's in a tip of, than it is in a typical symphony mm-hmm. and it's still for a full orchestra so you still have to put all those uh, all that big puzzles together to make it play so yeah it takes You know, but but sometimes you get a job where you're replacing a score and you have a week to do it. So you just get a lot of orchestrators and that kind of, it's like a factory.
1: Now, I was really curious because I grew up watching Cheers. It was obviously a very iconic show in its time and continuing. I had a friend that actually just did a rewatch shortly, you know, just fairly recently. And I am really curious just about the process of working on a sitcom, doing a week to week show like that, versus film you know obviously you have to crank out
2: a lot of music fairly quickly what was the process like working on cheers well cheers is not is a half hour comedy so it's very different than if you were doing ncis every week where there's a substantial amount of complicated music i mean cheers because of the background of the producers who were the writers basically They didn't really want a lot of music. They really just wanted the music to get you in and out of the bar in and out of a scene. And that's it. And so there was very little music. And usually it would be most more like at the beginning of a season, I would Record, you know, maybe 40 or 50 cues that they could use as a library and then every you know, I don't know, every few weeks I'd get a call. Hey, Craig, we have four episodes. Can you do them this week? Was, sure. And I'd write them all in an afternoon and record them like a day later. <laughs> it wasn't, it was only uh, five instruments. I, I played piano in all of it. And it was very uh, low-key music. It was not like writing piccolo parts of The Last Starfighter, you know. And <laughs> and so it it was, it, it's not a intense job at all mm-hmm. and to me Cheers what I like about Cheers is that it's like you it like has this sound that it had from the very first episode to the very end it has this sort of late night stride piano bar band sound that, that I really identified with that identifies with the show mm-hmm
1: were, were you at all involved? Because I know you didn't write the, um, the main theme song for the show. No, I, I
2: produced it, but I didn't write it.
1: Okay. So what was sort of the process of working that song into the show and your music kind of playing off of that?
2: Well, um, when I was hired to do the show by, by Jimmy Burroughs, um, he already had the theme. He already had the song he liked. Because I said, well, can I write the theme? And he said, no, well, I've got a theme. But do you want to write the episodes? And I thought, oh, okay, why not? And I mean, I, it was like a side, Cheers was literally a side gig. It was like, you know, I'm, I have this job, but for one hour a week, I'm going to go out on the Venice boardwalk and sell popcorn. I mean, it was literally <laughs> that much work. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. And I came up with the idea. I heard the, the song. But I, I didn't really use the song in terms of the underscore. It was more like I thought, well, this is uh, should have no electronics. It should be acoustic guitar, not electric guitar. And it should sound like you're in a bar. And I always thought of this bar in New York where occasionally, at late at night, Woody Allen would walk in and play the clarinet. And I always maj- imagined he was a really shitty clarinet player. And so the idea was is that it's late at night and we're playing this sort of weird music and the clarinet is going, you know, he's like sliding into notes and having huge jumps. And and we used to call it the bar band from Mars. That's what the guys used to call it. who played on it. And so it had that sort of very late night weird sound. Mm-hmm. And once I got that straight, the rest of the writing was, was really easy. But... Uh, in terms of the main theme, except for occasionally where I would do that, like dun da 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 dun dun, that would be it. Other than that, I never really fer- referred to it because I didn't feel when you were in the bar you needed that kind of groove. Right. I felt it should be much like ragtimey, a little lazier kind of sound. But I was—I uh I did produce the main title, so I was the leader of that session.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know. Yeah, but we never knew it was going to be a big hit, I mean, honestly. Right. I guess you never really do, though, do you? You don't. But in retrospect, unlike a lot of pilots I've worked on, it knew exactly what it was from the first episode. The characters, the mood, the ambiance, the kind of humor. They didn't have to find themselves. A lot of shows need to find themselves and, and get canceled because of it.
1: That has to make your job a lot easier if the show knows exactly
2: what it is. Absolutely. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're not looking at me to save the show or to tell or to figure out what they made, which a lot of movies do. Mm-hmm. You know, they go, oh, well, the music's going to really save this picture. And you go, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think that's going to happen. but
0: right. uh- um I think what I'll do one there's a couple of questions I would like to throw to our guests and um the first one is because yeah we are a spy movie podcast what is your favorite spy film Wow It's very on the spot here it's I uh...
2: <laughs> I'll tell you my favorite spy stories and there were some good films Okay and that is the all oh, the the Smiley Yeah uh Jean le Carré Mhm those are the best spy books I've ever read. I love when Al- the Alec Guinness movies. I don't remember it was a Tinker Tailor that he did. Yeah. Um, I love. There's some really. Bill Nighy was in one of those. I mean, there's some great. Um, there's some some really really good movies made of those, and they're, you know, they're they're really, really excellent uh, spy things i mean the spy who came in from the cold is great i don't remember the movie of that very well though i haven't seen that with richard burton i think was not yeah. in that uh, but it, the story is phenomenal um i don't really like the i mean i like some of the i forget the name of him. the uh the guy from who's like being chased the whole time
1: oh jason bourne the yes. jason
2: bourne i mean they're really well directed movies the guy's a great director uh i forget his name but uh um I like those. I mean, the James Bo- James Bonds are just classic, so what can you say? I mean, I love them. I remember seeing them when I was really little. They're a lot of fun. I still think the one with Ursula Andress is the best one ever made.
0: Yes, yes.
2: <laughs> and maybe that's just because I was of that age where Ursula Andress was a big <laughs> deal when I was an adolescent. You know, that was a pretty hot thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember. There's actually some very good uh, television spy things that are being done recently, but I can't really remember remember them. In this isolation period, we we've been watching a lot of BritBox TV, you know, and you watch all the BBC stuff, and it's fun, you know. So there's some very good uh, spy and detective kind of shows, but I think the, I think the the uh, John Le Car- or Jean Le Carre, however he says it, are, are really the best that I like that I would watch again. How about you?
0: I, I always put my hand up saying I'm not a very big uh, spy literature uh, reader, I should say. Um, I, I tend to stick with the films, so that, that's why well, we which, have this podcast. Well, which,
2: which film do you like? the most? Um, If
0: I'm going to put my finger on my favorite spy film right now, it's probably North by Northwest, Alfred Hitchcock.
2: Yeah, well, listen, that's, one of the greats I, I teach a class in film music and i mean i always use that score it's one of the absolutely best film scores ever written and talk about a palette mm-hmm. that is a very specific sound to it and a choice the choices that are made that's an amazing film i again i don't think of it as a spy story but it is you're right because with james mason and the the microfilm and all that but but in a funny way that's the least part of it. <laughs> yeah. The big part of it is, is him and her and all the, and you know, all the interaction and the chases. I mean, they're just amazing. How about you? What's your, what's your you?
1: I mean, North by Northwest is definitely very high on my list. I mean, I was a James Bond kid, so it's very hard right. for me to not acknowledge James Bond because that's what got me into the whole genre in the first place. For right. me, I started with Roger Moore, but I've always said Roger Moore is my favorite, but I can totally acknowledge Sean Connery's the best. When I watch Dr. No from Russia With Love, you yeah. can't really argue in terms of a literary adaptation there's anyone better than Connery.
2: Well, do you ever watch, have you ever seen the reruns of The Saint? Yeah. Yeah, with I've Robert seen The Saint. Yeah. Sort of cool, yeah.
0: Yep. I, I, I've i seen bits of The Saint. It gets played on TV from
2: time to time here. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah. I suppose we'll throw the question back at you, though, a little bit. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite Bond?
2: Well, I told you the one, uh, the the one with Ursula Andress. Which one is that? Is that Doctor No? That's yeah. Doctor No. So would you yeah. say Sean Connery is your Bond? Yeah, for sure. But I like Roger Moore. Um, you know, but I, but I, Sean Connery is has more depth as a as a person. <laughs> Portrayal yeah. has more, more, di- uh, you know, just more layers. Mm, more Roger Moore sure. is a little more surface. I'm really handsome and cool. You know, I mean, you can't get more handsome than Roger Moore, right? You, you really can't.
0: I can never connect with Roger Moore because of that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You look just like him. I, I don't get it. And we all do, right?
0: I'm sorry. I've got a filter on my Zoom right now. This is what's confusing it for everyone. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was going to usually ask what your favorite film, uh, spy film score would be, but we've basically touched on that with John Barry's work.
2: I like John Barry a lot, but you know, when you bring up North by Northwest, I, and I think John Barry was an incredible composer, although my favorite John Barry are his later scores or Out of Africa and uh, Somewhere in Time and uh, uh, Dances with Wolves. And I mean, those melodies like give me chills when I hear those, those beautiful melodies. But my favorite would really be North by Northwest. I mean, that is one of my favorite scores of all time. I mean, I think that's just an amazing score on so many levels too.
1: Awesome. Um, okay. Well, I, I mean, Cam, do you have anything? No, I think I've got everything covered. Right. Yeah.
0: Um, well in that case, I mean, that leaves us all to say, Craig, thank you for joining us. It's been I, it's been amazing to talk Remo Williams with something someone other than Cam, <laughs> frankly.
1: <laughs>
2: well, it's it's been a pleasure. I'm glad I got the Remo poster up there in time. And uh you know, that was my little little gift to this. So uh great. Yeah. Let, me know when, well, uh, let me know when it's airing and uh, I'll take a look.
0: Will awesome. do. Um yeah, so Craig, thank you for joining us. Um Cam,
2: Yeah,
1: thank you so much. Thanks for your time.
0: Okay, take it easy, guys. Take Take Craig. Cheers.
1: Bye-bye.
0: There you go. Thank you again to Craig for joining us. It was fantastic to sit down and talk to him about all things Remo Williams and, of course, you know, Cheers, Last Starfighter. Uh, I I have a lot of fond memories of Last Starfighter as a kid. I actually went back and watched it today before I uh, sat down to interview him, and uh, it's still a great film.
1: Yeah, what was that experience like revisiting it?
0: I always get worried about watching films from my childhood. I've spoken about this before um, with some other things, but uh, this one, it just feels like the exact kind of film you want to watch as a 10 year old. It's, you know, it's a, a, have you seen it before, Cam?
1: Yeah. I saw it when I was a kid and then I watched it probably. And I only saw it the once when I was probably like 10 or 11 or something like that. But um, I saw it maybe five, six years ago at uh, a local art house theater here in Vancouver called the Cinematheque. They used to do a Sunday morning series where they would show um, sort of interesting family films, Um, things like Journey to the Center of the Earth, the original version, or, um, you know, Mars Attacks. It was generally, you know, kind of curated, interesting films aimed at sort of a family audience. And one week they did Last Starfighter, and I had the day off work, so I went and saw it. And it was really interesting to see it on the big screen hear that score in an actual auditorium. And um, I enjoyed revisiting it. It wasn't a nostalgia buster, like, um, well, a lot of my movies I enjoyed as a kid. Yeah, I think something like
0: the special effects maybe don't hold up now, but that's in that sort of rear view mirror style. I think if you watched that in the year it came out, you'd think it looks fantastic. Um, It's that sort of CG style as opposed to practical effects that you use. But yeah, again, I think his score is fantastic in that, and I think, as we said before leading into the interview, his score for Remo was
1: terrific. Yeah, like, Last Starfighter, we knew that that was a really solid score and very memorable. Remo Williams, that was a discovery for us. We did not watch Remo Williams growing up. It was not a movie that we discovered on TV, you know, in our teens or something like that. It was just a couple of weeks ago that we actually watched Remo Williams for the first time and that score really did jump out and i was really interested to talk to him about the musical identity of that character given that they were pitching this as like the what was it the red white and blue collar james bond so james bond is so music driven what does it mean for remo williams and i was really interested in his answer there
0: i mean it has to has to say something that my my better half said to me earlier you must really like that soundtrack you keep humming it I've been walking around all day today just going, and, you she's getting quite bored of it now, but
1: uh, I really enjoy it. Yeah, it's very catchy, and I mean, I found myself on YouTube watching clips of him um, conduct orchestras through performances of that track, you know, the main theme from Remo Williams. I do not do this for most of the movies that we cover as much as I love Danny Olfman. I wasn't looking up clips of him conducting the men in black theme. For example, there was something about this Remo one. While I don't hold it in the regard, maybe I do of you know, say Indiana Jones or, you know, some of the other eighties classics, that theme, those like eighties themes that were so prominent. And I loved so many of them. I even think of like John Williams, Superman score as well. in like 78 or 79, whatever, I think 78. Um, Those types of um, themes I recall so fondly, and I love them. They're the things I still listen to, you know, on my iPhone. And Remo Williams was like this lost discovery for me, one I didn't know existed that I was really excited to find and add to my playlist because it's so much fun to listen to. I was reminded as well of The Man
0: with One Red Shoe, which we covered um, a couple of months ago maybe at this point. That, again, was sort of a mediocre film. But I loved the soundtrack, I think, by Thomas Newman, who went on to do Skyfall and Spectre. Um, I think it's a bit of a shame. Craig Saffin didn't really get his chance to do a, a proper, air quotes, spy film.
1: Yeah. And you know what? Um, I know he didn't really think of Remo Williams as a spy franchise. But nonetheless, I would have been really interested in a world where, like, Remo Williams continued. Um, and maybe they ironed out some of the kinks of that franchise. Um, where he could have evolved musically. Because I think that would have been interesting. Well, we even say on the
0: episode, we kind of compare it to Indiana Jones, I believe, at one point. And even he admitted to that side of the things. It had that adventure film feel to it. Um, I think they would have just kept the uh, the boulder rolling, if you will. <laughs> oh, Wow. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, I think they were just lent into that sort of action adventure side of things more than the, the spy. He is—I I would put him as spy adjacent, and that's why we covered it. But you know, it, it is an adventure film.
1: Yeah, well, it kind of falls in that secret agent territory, which you know, again, we've opened the door to those types of films because, again, I think they add some diversity to the overall catalog of what we cover on the podcast.
0: Yeah, I could talk about Remo Williams' score for a long time, but I mean, apart from that, Cam, any any uh, highlights from the interview?
1: There was a couple for me. I was really excited to hear him talk about working on Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master, because you know, it, just in terms of um, that franchise, the music is quite recognizable, and you don't hear a lot of interviews where you know where composers talk about scoring you know an entry in a horror franchise and that to me was just really interesting to hear him talk about some of the psychology behind the decisions he made in terms of composing the music for that score um and how he kind of decided to take a different track to the music than the previous composer who'd worked i guess on part three that sort of stuff was really interesting to me plus working with rennie harlan um and also cheers and now i know scott cheers wasn't that big a deal for you growing up right yeah, it, it was still a big thing in this country. It
0: was it definitely caught on. I think it, it just missed me in right. the age gap. I was more of the, the friends generation.
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, I was probably 10, maybe 11, somewhere in there when I would watch Cheers and syndication. And, you know, I haven't watched Cheers in a long time now. But the images of that show and the music are very indelible. Like I remember them like they were yesterday. And I wouldn't say that for a lot of sitcoms. Like, There's something about not just the music that he created for that show, but just the entire package of that show. It really does linger in your mind. So just to hear him talk about helping contribute to that mood of what that show was, it w- was really interesting. And not something I expected when I started Spy Hard's podcast. No,
0: this is not an avenue I expected to go down at all. <laughs> but uh, I, I definitely get it with sort of incidental music in in, in TV um, one of my favorite shows, apart from Star Trek and apart from sort of spy stuff, is uh, Scrubs, the medical drama. And I, I must have rewatched that show at least ten times. There's eight seasons. So that's a lot of time. I know all of the incidental tracks, right? From that show, I could I, I could play them for you. Um, it's so it's
1: a big job, and it leaves a mark on the on the viewers. Yeah, and Seinfeld, another one of my favorite shows. The music in that very very memorable and i think you know at least i've never watched scrubs but i can say for both um, cheers and for seinfeld like the music contributes a significant amount to establishing the tone of those shows so it was just fascinating and again just not something i ever expected in my life to be able to hear someone really break that down for me you know over a zoom call very exciting
0: (laughs) and this is a guy who teaches you know to film schools about you know, Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest, which I say is probably my favorite spy film currently,
1: so he knows good scores, yeah, I do wonder of the people we talk to on these um, spy master interviews, when we ask them who is their bond, will we ever get an answer that is George Lazenby or Timothy Dalton? I don't think you'll get those. I think you you stand a chance of getting a Brosnan, you stand a chance of getting a I think we've had a Craig, yeah. I think Rawson Marshall Thurber said Craig. Um, I think we've gotten a few where they said, you know, Sean Connery, Daniel Craig, that sort of mm. thing.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think you're going to get a Lazenby or Dalton. Not to knock either actor. I think all their films are fantastic. I just think people just tend to think Bond and they go straight down the Connery or straight down the Moor or maybe Brosnan and maybe Craig.
1: Will we ever get a David Niven? <laughs> <laughs> um
0: Depends if they've been smoking something before.
1: <laughs> no kidding. But no, all in all, this is really interesting. You know, in the past, we've talked to an actor, um, a director, a writer. Now we've got a composer. So I like that we're tackling different elements of the filmmaking process. And I can't wait till we get, you know, I, I don't know, a gaffer in here. You know, I would love to get an art director on. <laughs> I joke about the gaffer. But like an art director would be really interesting on a film that had a very recognizable you know, um, sort of set design to it. You know, I, I don't know that we're going to get Ken Adam back from the dead to talk about Bond, but someone who's created something along those lines, like that sort of very memorable visual look to their sets in their world would be really interesting. I think there's probably a few we can approach, but I,
0: I'm going to point this out to listeners that we are four for zero. Uh, I've found all four of our guests so far, and Cam has contributed nothing. I just keep chasing after gaffers, and
1: they keep breaking my heart. <laughs> Like what's a what's a podcast?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm strictly CNN, baby. <laughs> yeah.
1: So yeah, I mean, we'll have to look into this. But we again, we are looking forward to doing more of these spy master interviews in the future and bringing you access to um, filmmakers that um, maybe are outside of what you might expect us to be talking to. So. We we like to surprise, and I hope this was a pleasant surprise for those of you that listened.
0: Yeah, the aim of the game for me is you know you, you can search your podcast app now for an interview with I don't know movie star X who was in this bunch of films, and they've been interviewed a thousand times because they do all these press junkets, and the answers will mostly be the same. Um, I'd rather find us some interesting people to talk to that don't get spoken to enough, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and and try and get some insightful stuff. I mean, speaking to Nicholas Meyer about a Bond film, who would have thought it?
1: Yeah. Um, but
0: you know, thank you again for joining us. Cam, what do we have next week?
1: We are gonna be tackling Jason Bourne, the final question mark, Matt Damon Bourne film.
0: I, I haven't seen it as I mentioned uh on the actual Remo episode from a few days ago. I'm looking forward to watching it. And um, yeah, the question mark, I think, still stands. It'd be interesting uh, to see if this franchise does continue. Mm -hmm, For sure. So don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, the adventure is just beginning.